Professor Laura Empson. And I'm David Morley. And welcome back to Leading Professional People. In this series, we bring together cutting-edge theory and first-hand experience to offer in-depth insights into the unique challenges of leading professional people. So in this episode, we're going to be exploring the question, can dual leadership structures be effective and how do they work in practice? And we'll be speaking to Barry Devereaux and Catherine Dean, who are the managing partner and chair of one of Ireland's most successful and most respected law firms, McCann Fitzgerald. And this is a firm that's recently introduced a dual leadership structure. And both Laura and I are particularly looking forward to this conversation because we know Catherine and Barry very well. And as the Irish say, we know that they like a good crack. David, you know that phrase, it's lonely at the top. If a professional firm leader ever says that to me, I think, well, that's because you're not doing it right. You need to have people around you to share the burden of leadership and to stop you from screwing up. Well, I agree. And uh, you know, I've always worked within a dual leadership structure where both the managing partner and the senior partner are elected. Uh, although I know in many US law firms, for example, a unitary structure is much more common. Recently, I understand KPMG in the UK announced it was splitting the chair and senior partner role and creating a dual structure. So I've always been really interested in this idea of why it is that some firms adopt a dual structure and how they configure it and why others prefer a unitary structure and which is best. Well, I've done a lot of research on this. And the first thing to get clear is that firms use all sorts of titles in different combinations, managing partner, senior partner, chair, CEO, managing partner, chair. Sometimes they chuck in a COO in there as well. And really, the actual title they have, these individuals have, gives very little indication of what they actually do or how much power they actually have. Yes, absolutely. And I've, outside of the professional services sector, I think people are often confused by all these different titles. And it's interesting because sometimes both people are elected to those roles. Sometimes one appoints the other. And sometimes one is elected and the other is appointed by a committee. So there doesn't seem to be any kind of standard way of, of doing this. Sometimes they're elected together and sometimes elections are staggered. Yes. And when professional firms ask me to advise them on their governance and leadership, I'm always clear that there is no ideal template, that it's important to craft a structure which suits that particular firm at that particular point in time. But one thing I am clear about is that for most professional firms, a dual leadership structure is a much better form of governance than a unitary structure. So when partnerships are small, you can argue that the partnership as a whole acts as a check and a balance on the power of the leader at the top. But as soon as the partnership grows beyond a certain size and starts to delegate power to the leadership, you can't rely any longer on the partnership to exercise effective oversight. Well, and I've noticed throughout my career that there's something happens to the dynamics once an office, for example, gets above a certain size, I would say typically 15 to 20 partners. There's something about reaching that kind of size, which makes the whole dynamics of running the thing very, very different. Yes. And the people at the top start to take more power on a delegated basis. And in a sense, that starts to disenfranchise the rest of the partnership. So they can no longer act as quite such an effective check and balance. But it's a basic principle of good governance to enshrine that that oversight of the leadership roles is embedded within the governance structure. But Laura, you're making it sound as though it's all about power control, some kind of Game of Thrones approach. The dual leadership structure, in my mind, can be a lot more fun than that. So, for example, when I was senior partner at Allen and Overy, I really valued the relationship I had with the managing partner at the time, Wim de Jong. 
And for me, you know, some of this is about sharing the volume of work because no one person can do it all. Yeah, and it's not just about the volume and no one person can do it all because they don't have the skills to do everything and they need a colleague to help them with that. And there's something a little more subtle to that as well because there's a quote by Linda Ronstadt in the context of singing duets where she says, the thing I like about singing duets is that I get things out of my own voice I never get by singing by myself. I'm not sure whether all of our younger listeners will recognise the reference to Linda Ronstadt, but you know, look, look her up, she's great. Because some of this is just about having someone you can talk to, someone else who's risen through the ranks of the partnership and who now thinks about the firm day in, day out, just like you do. So I want to talk to Barry and Catherine about this. At the start of 2019, Barry was in sole charge of the firm as managing partner. And he brought me in to design the role of the chair and to work with partners to persuade them to accept this change. And shortly after they elected their first chair, the pandemic struck. So I'm really curious to hear about how it's been working out for them. We'd like to kick off with a question on this whole kind of dual leadership idea. And that's maybe this is one for you, Barry. Why is it that you thought that uh, the firm needed a chair? A good question, David. Why do we have a chair? Um, so if we go back about six years, when I was being elected uh, as managing partner of the firm, we had a debate amongst the partnership about the unitary versus the dual leadership. But time wasn't in our favour, so we got on with the election. Relative to the Irish economy, McCann Fitzgerald is a big business. We have 37 businesses underneath uh, the bonnet. We're in four cities, 75 partners and 600 people. So as you know, David, there's many strands to being a managing partner, but I divide them into two buckets. One is the running of the business, the operations, the financial, the clients, the strategy. And the other big part is engaging with your partners. Um, so having time to engage with partners to understand their businesses and enable them to do their best. So what I did after a couple of years was I decided to go back to timesheets which uh, is a horrifying prospect for people who've given it up. But I went back and I recorded my time for a year to see where I was spending my time. And when the year was up, I assessed this and synthesized it. And it proved to me what I instinctively knew, which was I wasn't getting around to some of the important stuff. So that was the first reason why we did it. I felt that the important stuff wasn't getting enough attention of mine. There is only one of me and one of any managing partner. The second thing is you do absorb a lot as a managing partner. It's not easy to share the burden with busy partners um, and it can be a lonely place. One partner said to me, you know, Barry, your job is the captain always sleeps alone. You're not to be uh, too friendly with too many people, which I thought was quite interesting. But But the third reason, which I think is a bigger reason, which is, you know, you could get through this and you could continue to do the job you're doing by putting a lot of time and energy into it, but it wasn't setting us up for the future. I felt that whoever succeeded me was going to have a bigger business by definition and a structure that wasn't best suited to, to the growth of the firm. So I felt that was important that, you know, we get the best out of our people and our business. And therefore, you know, the dual structure would give me the freedom to spend more time on the business. Barry, I, know, I remember at the conference, I watched you give your presentation and present the pie chart showing how you split your time. And, you know, your logic to me was compelling. And, and as you know, I am a great believer in the dual structure. So I was a little bit surprised when the partners started responding to what you'd said. And there was a surprising amount of pushback. And Catherine, I don't know if you can remember that far back, but can you remember some of the concerns that people had, why, why this seemed not to be a, 
a, a no-brainer. I, I think if you look at a group of partners, highly intelligent partners who spend their entire working day and they're trained to look at problems, question everything, look ahead to scenarios for their client, good and bad, predict those, try and legislate for them. So put anything in front of a group of highly motivated partners, they're always going to question things. So it wasn't so much they objected to it. Partners were doing what you expect partners to do who own a business, is that they're questioning everything in relation to the business. So absolutely, they were asking, why are you doing this? What are you trying to achieve? What is wrong with what we have at the moment? Hasn't it served us extremely well? over the years. And I think there was also some questions and thinking around, well, if you have a managing partner looking after the business end and you have a chair that's looking after partners' partnership, is there going to become a disconnect between the partners and the business? And we know that the key thing in a partnership is that the partners and the business are inextricably linked. You can't have the business without the partners. If you don't have the business, you won't attract and retain the best partners. So any sense that that essential part of our partnership structure and what we believe in was going to be fractured in any way by a dual role was a concern. I think also, I mean, in the partnership, as Barry is the only person at that time that is not expected to do fee earning and client work. So were we going to take another successful partner out of fee earning work and put them into non-fee earning work? Right? A, a, a legitimate concern for, for the partnerships. And then there was concerns and issues and questions around what type of person would be attracted to the role? Who would end up in the role? Um, a recognition that most likely it would be a more senior partner within the organization. But would we end up, as one partner I think said to me, the, the role becoming a retirement home for partners who are moving towards the end of their career and maybe, you know, wanted to take the foot off the accelerator but didn't want to leave the building, so to speak. So they were all actually legitimate concerns and questions that were good to be asked and voiced because then it got us into really thinking, what were we trying to achieve and what was the role and how were we going to manage it and, and create it in a context that would work for McCann Fitzgerald and the partners in McCann Fitzgerald. And Catherine, you present your partner's reasoning on the day in a very, very rational, coherent and, and perfectly reasonable way. I mean, and I also remember the old helpful bit of heckling. It was an interesting. I mean, I got a sense of the real energy and life within your firm and also how passionately your partners care about the firm. The fact that you know, everyone really did have an opinion and, and were using their intellectual skills to really try and pull apart, I mean, literally pull apart Barry's logic and test it to destruction. But as we know, that was just the beginning of the process. Because the next time I met all the partners together, the decision went through very smoothly. So talk through a bit what happened in the interim and the months in between. Yeah, it's a, it's a good question, Laura. This is a big change. We have not had this leadership structure before in recent times, and it is a big change, and people need to understand it, and that's the benefit of a partnership, that people feel they can debate these things. And so what happened in the meantime? I think a couple of things, Laura. Uh, you, you spoke to us at the conference about unleashing the power of partnership, and then we talked about the chair, and the room at the time was, I'd say, evenly divided. You know, there was as many 
many people in favor as against when we did the poll at the end. But what we did was um, we brought you back and we brought you back, Laura, to meet the partners on a one-to-one -one basis. And you skillfully asked people, what is it that you don't like about this? And when you described it to them that it could be done in a different way and you removed that pillar, uh, one by one, the objections started to, to dissipate. So I think the one-to-ones that, that you did were very important. And then you came back and presented again to us on this time on the real benefit of dual leadership. And you, you had a captivated audience there. And I felt when you left that room that the die was cast and we did vote on it, but it didn't take long to uh, come up with uh, an overwhelming support you know, for that. And that was, so if we had our conference in November and by May we'd voted it through. So it happened quite quickly when you think it was on the agenda in November as a kind of a, a final item of a day. And six months later, we had instituted a major structural change to the business. Well, thank you, Barry. I mean, one of the things I was doing in these interviews was playing a slightly tricky game because I knew that the way to win round the people who were most uncomfortable with the suggestion was to really sell it on a governance angle and basically talk about the role of the chair as curbing your power, bringing in a chair to act as a check and balance on your power. And once I started presenting it in those ways, they could see there was it was a very good idea. But then I had to present it back to you, Barry, because that wasn't necessarily why you originally thought you needed a chair. So it was a, it was a very interesting, I mean, I, I rarely have a consulting assignment where I'm so clear of the outcome that I'm aiming for. But in this particular case, I felt very strongly I knew what your organization needed, but I was having to sell it in multiple directions in different ways. But yes, over time and through these interviews and the discussions with you, we managed to work out what was the minimum role that people needed and people would be happy with. And I think people who are not familiar with the dynamics of partnership might be thinking, well, why on earth would somebody who on the face of it has all the power, I know that's not quite how it feels when you're in that position, but on the face of it has all the power, why on earth would they give that up some of that power and put themselves in a position that some might think has somehow diminished their power and status. And of course, at the time, you didn't know it was going to be Catherine. It could have been anyone that the partnership decided. So how did you rationalise that? Yeah, that's a good question, David. And, you know, from the beginning, go back to 2014, when that idea was first floated, I felt it was incumbent on me to look at this. And the longer I went on doing it, the more I could see the things that I needed to spend more time on were just getting pushed to the side. So, you know, and you, David, you, you know, and Laura, that power in a professional service firm isn't autocratic. It's not like a chief executive. It's dissipated. There are lots of powerful people in an organization like a professional service firm. So I would say power is overrated. It's not a, you know, an omnipotent leader who decides to do everything and people just follow. So to me, it was more about, you know, someone will take over for me, obviously, when I move on from this job. And it's important that they don't inherit a structure that is unwieldy and is probably set up to fail in the long term. So to me, it's bigger than me. It's bigger than the role. It's about the firm and positioning itself in the best place. And I think, Laura, you mentioned uh, during your presentation a couple of things around three scenarios. One, the managing partner and the chair get on really well. No problems. Two, 
they pass each other, they, they transact business, but they don't particularly care for each other. And three, they actually can't stand each other. And you persuaded us that in all three scenarios, it's possible. And you've seen examples where it just works, even if, so it's not like we have to find the right person for Barry. Otherwise, it's, it's a doomed to failure. And we had a number of really good candidates and any one of whom you could have worked with very well. So I think, David, to watch your question, you know, the, the power thing, I think I downplay. It's to me, I'm doing what I want to do. And Catherine and I have a very good working relationship and we get on together in doing things. And it's a, it's, it's a lot better this way. And uh, I know you'll talk about that in, in a while. But I think as well, it, it's not about, as Barry said, it's not about power. It's not about two people having different aspects of power within an organization. I think the successful part of the, the dual role is the different perspectives that are brought to any discussion. So you can divide up a dual role and look upon it just as two people with two different jobs within the partnership. Or you can say what the dual role is actually about. It is the conversations and questions that we have of each other and discussions that you have. And in fact, the best discussions that a dual leadership should have are discussions that start with, I wonder if this is right. I wonder, should we look at this again? I wonder, are we bringing the right perspective to bear on that? So that, that is the key. It's, it's not about power. It is about perspectives, sharing perspectives and looking at things in as many angles as you can in the best interest of the firm and all the constituents within the firm. So Catherine, you, you put your name forward, but a number of other candidates did too, and you were elected. Can you remember why you put your name forward at the time? Well, you know, it, it's, it's a question you, you have to continuously ask yourself when you're in any role and you're stay in that role. Keep reminding yourself of what was your thought process when you went forward for the role. So, I mean, very much like you, David and Alan and Overy. So I joined McCann Fitzgerald straight out of college. And, you know, the unique thing about the law firm environment, is that they are designed to identify talent. I, I'd actually been given many roles in the firm. Uh, once I was made a partner, I was put in charge of, you know, our recruitment of all the trainees, which at the end of the 90s, when law firms were growing, that's when the big, you know, competition for talent among law firms was at its height. Uh, I was out on maternity leave with my first child and I was asked to go on to then managing partners, management committee as people partner. I was on that for 11 years, continuing to build my practice. So I felt two things. Number one, I had to ask myself, did I think I had the experience and talents and attributes that the partners would expect of anybody who was putting themselves forward for this role? Did I think I would enjoy it? I think, you know, enjoyment of what you're doing within a partnership is key. You know, you will never be good at something that you're not enjoying. And then the final thing was, am I at a stage now in my career when I give something back to a firm that had given so much to me over my career? And so when you added all, all those up, it really was quite a simple thing to say, yes, I want this job. I would love to do this job. Yes, I think I can give something to the firm and the partners. And shortly after you took on the role, the pandemic started. So 
So how was it for you? Well, it's interesting, Laura. I think, you know, the, the, the saying, a battle plan never survives the first contact with the enemy. Catherine and I had a clear division of roles. Catherine would deal with the partnership issues. I would deal with the business issues. We would share ideas. And for a few months, we had November, November 19, December, January, and some of February, where it was peacetime. We had our list. We actually, we, we actually wrote down what we would do. So we would be all clear what we would do. This is mine. This is yours. And on we go. And we used to meet on Mondays and we used to catch up and then off we go about our business. Um, and then COVID came. And the thing, thing about COVID was it was so rapid, so accelerated, so unforeseen what it would do to all of us that pretty much the plan went out the window. That was the first contact with the enemy. Like our big objective was make the big calls by the time and make sure the partners come along uh, with us. And like what, what happened, in my sense, what, what happened to the, the plan was it went out the window, as I said earlier, and it became about what do we need to do to get through this? And it doesn't matter what you're doing, what I'm doing. And I would be straying into Catherine's area. She would be suggesting all sorts of things that I should be doing. And we just got on with it. Now, to the partners, we stuck with the business and the partnership. But behind the scenes, we were engaging a lot with each other. And Catherine took on roles that were not part of the original brief and took on and took responsibility for big roles uh, to help us get through this. You know, it was a, a really good test of a structure and um, you can lay it all out very clearly as to what you want to do. And then you hit a pandemic and you have to go home. You can't even be together. You can't be in the same room for most of the year. So I think it's interesting that uh, we had a little bit of peacetime and then we had war. And I think we're now heading back to a bit of peacetime, hopefully. And you're both obviously very highly intelligent, uh, committed people. You all have differences of view on certain things. So I think people listening might think, well, how did you sort that out? When COVID hit and it was impacting, obviously, our possibility to have a negative impact on our business, but it was also impacting on us all personally. So even when partners left the building and went home, there was COVID was everywhere. You couldn't get away from it. So it was, it was that impact on the human psyche, the human beings that we are. The most important thing here is our business and our people. And whatever we do, that has to be the focus. It's not about the role of what a managing partner is supposed to be doing or what a chair is supposed to be doing. We just really have to get into the trenches together and do what we have to do and what seems right and is right for McCann Fitzgerald. And that's what we did. We didn't, we didn't even question who was doing what. It was instinctive, really, wasn't it? When you got into the tank, so to speak, and you're you're moving forward into battle, everything became instinctive. Yeah, because I was thinking, to take your tank analogy further, I mean, in a tank, there's a very clear chain of command. You know, they've done a lot of war games to practice. What happens when you're, when, when you're both trying to drive the tank and, and you're having a... You know, having an argument because you're both trying to read the map or something. I mean, well, well, I mean, I'd say neither one of us would be intransigent. So if if you start a conversation with, I'm going to disagree with you on this, David. I've got you offside, or Barry has got me offside, even before the conversation starts. So it has to be around a discussion or an approach to do things. And yes, when you don't agree with things, sometimes we'd say, well, let's sleep on it and talk about it tomorrow. Or, or let's talk to somebody else about it. Or we might say, well, maybe, you know, this is something we just disagree on, but we move on. You, you know, if you're going to disagree, disagree, but don't keep bringing the disagreement with you. So I think that is the way we, we would have, we would have worked through it. Yeah. And I think, Catherine, too, that, um, you know, 
to me, you can boil it down to we had to make some big calls, big business calls affecting the firm and affecting partners. So an obligation to make the calls, not to vacillate, not to uh, prevaricate, to get on with it. And then bringing the partners with you is the second big part. It's, you know, you can make the decision and now you think, okay, this seems to us to be the, the best course of action, having diligence it for a week or two or as much time as you're allowed to have. How do we bring the partners with us? Many times I will say, that's a really good idea. It's better than I was thinking we'll do it. And vice versa, Catherine will say, I was thinking of doing it this way. But actually, so we never had a confrontation where we walked out and said, you're crazy, I'm not doing this, because we both knew we had a job to do and we couldn't have the firm flounder while two leaders kind of couldn't get on with each other. So we, we kind of had that innate obligation to get on with it. And and we did. I don't remember any moment where I'm seething, thinking, this is crazy. I can't believe you're suggesting this. That said, I did change my mind. So did Catherine. And we ended up in what we believed was the best thing for the firm. And then bringing the partners with us, which is the role you know, Catherine has in terms of you know, my presentations to partners, how do we position that? How do we ensure partners have all the information? And as Catherine says, they're all very smart, intelligent people that listen to rational argument. And how you present these things is critical. So Barry, give me an example of the very best thing that you feel Catherine has done to help you do your role this year. Yeah, Laura, I think I touched on some of it earlier, but um, if you were to, you know, asking me that question, I would say being able to confide in someone of equal standing, someone who has plenty of ambition and someone who has the best interests of the firm at heart. Having that support was huge. And the fact that Catherine's saying, here, I'll take on this. You have enough to be doing with the financial issues. Let me take on, for example, the HR issues. Let me get going on that. And so I'd say a combination of diving in and taking stuff off your desk uh, because the desk was literally spilling over. And the second thing was, you know, that enablement of decisions, you know, getting decisions approved by partners after we had appropriate levels of, of, of discussion. And Catherine, do you think that those are the ways in which you've been of most help to the firm or is there another element beyond that that Barry hasn't mentioned? In a time of crisis, to know that there are two people who are walking shoulder to shoulder to do what's best gives confidence. And what you need in times of crisis is for the partners to believe that the people that they have endowed with roles and responsibilities within the farm are working together to confidently and they can be trusted by the partners because actually what you want partners to do is actually continue to do what partners do best, which is run hugely successful practices. That's what partners join and stay in law firms for. So you need to present to partners a leadership that the partners are happy with and they can go back to do really what they're passionate about and do best and want to do best. Yes, that, I think that's very well said, Catherine. I've perhaps got one final question for you both. Uh, so if you were talking to a firm that was contemplating moving from a single structure to a dual structure to incorporate the two roles, what's the one piece of advice that you might offer them? I might go first on that, if I may. Um, if you're listening into this and you have a unitary structure, I'd say ask yourself a series of questions. One, are you dealing with all of the important issues affecting the business? Have you time to think 
about big issues. Uh, things like strategy, things like clients. Are you visiting your clients? You have a role and a title that gets you into the door, into the boardroom of any of your biggest clients. Have you time to do that? Are you staying in touch with partners and everybody else in the business, the secretaries, the trainees, the business support people? And the last thing I'd say is, what are you handing over to your successor? But they're the questions I think you should ask yourself and be honest with yourself because you can say, yes, you're absolutely fine. Like I used to think, yes, I can do all these things. And then I sat back and said, actually, uh, those timesheets are pretty telling. I'm not spending enough time on those things. Why is that? So be honest with yourself and go on a journey and it may take you to a place that is, is better for your firm or you might decide it's not for you. Yeah, and I think that's right. And just coming back to something actually, Barry, you said at the start, I think in response to one of the earlier questions about the role of a managing partner can be a lonely role if you are the sole leader within an organisation. And so from a managing partner's point of view, it's absolutely essential that managing partner knows the partners because that is key to successfully managing a partnership is that you really need to know your partners. But at the same time, like everything else in a partnership, it's a balancing act. So absolutely, you have to know your partners. But to be a managing partner, you have to be objective. You have to be independent as well. And in some ways, dispassionate. So you lose sometimes, you know, the people that you might have around you as a practicing lawyer that's not the managing partner. You can call in next door to any of your partners and get help and bounce things off. And I think it's that ability for anybody in a leadership role within any big organization. It's lonely without having somebody else that's there for you as well. And I think anybody who is starting on looking at a dual role, I would say go down the road that we went, which is look at what you have, look at what would work best for your partnership, because it will be different in every partnership. And accept the questions, the queries, the opposition, uh, the contest from partners. Deal with that and bring your partners along with you to get a role that actually suits your organization currently and what you think your organization is going to be into the future. David, what struck you most about that interview? Well, they were very aligned with each other, weren't they? I guess I already knew that, but it came out very clearly. They'd obviously worked out a way of exchanging ideas and not treading on each other's toes. They were kind of, they were singing together as a great duet. Barry talked about your research and I like the way he referred to that you had said it was possible for a leadership dyad to work successfully, even when you didn't necessarily like each other. I must say, I'm not sure I agree with that. I, I'm not sure you could really make that kind of relationship work if there's a lot of conflict involved. Well, it all depends on the reasons for that conflict. Is it personal or is it organisational? If the managing partner and the chair don't like or respect each other, then I agree. It's going to infect the partnership dynamics more generally and that can become really toxic. But often there's a conflict between the managing partner and chair because they're embodying attention within the partnership. So the partners deliberately elect people who represent different viewpoints amongst them, different practice areas, geographies or, or generations. And when this happens, it can be really challenging for the managing partner and chair because they embody a much bigger organisational conflict. But by acting out and resolving that conflict on a daily basis, they're performing a huge act of service for the firm as a whole. And I do see that. And I, I recognise what you say in that from my own experience. Uh, I personally felt that 
when you're in that position, it's not a good idea to have that conflict played out in public between you for all sorts of reasons, but not least because you can end up making the split in the partnership even worse. And I think that, you know, you've got to try and work out some kind of common position, although it's okay to present your ideas in different ways to people. You don't want to be Tweedledum and Tweedledee. So that's something I think when I was working with with Wim, it was something that Wim would sometimes complain about uh, a little bit because he would ask, you know, why am I always positioned as the bad guy and you always seem to be the good guy? Well, David... I think it's important for you to always be seen as the good guy. I am the good guy. (laughs) So you need to make sure you team up with someone else who's prepared to sometimes play the bad guy. Yes, I didn't deliberately put him in that position, but I could see how that dynamic could play out. And I think, you know, in fairness, I think Wim sometimes felt he was having to do more of that than he should have done. But the point is, you were both comfortable enough with each other to have that conversation. So Wim could tell you when he was feeling uncomfortable. And it didn't build up as this kind of festering resentment between the two of you. And with some dyads, the resentments go very deep and are never resolved. I mean, there are some extraordinary stories of really quite petty and disturbing things that can go wrong between the leaders at the top of professional firms. Yeah, and I've seen it. But uh, yeah, I was I was very, very lucky with Wim because, you know, when we had this discussion about good guys and bad guys, it was more about, it was more done in humour than in complaint. That's the way it was. I think he quite liked being the bad guy, actually. Um, but it's interesting when you look at the uh, the dual leadership structure within McCann Fitzgerald, it clearly does work. And, you know, I suppose a question in my mind is, is that because of the way they've divided up their roles or is it just the personal relationship they have between each other? Well, in my most recent book, I I talk about the two dimensions, the roles and the relationships within the leadership dyad. And I identify these four distinct kinds of dyads, depending on whether the relationship is harmonious or discordant, on whether the roles are overlapping or distinct. And when I talk about this, people always assume the roles should be distinct and the relationships should be harmonious. And that is the optimal combination. But actually, my research has found that all four of these combinations can be really effective. Mm, That's quite interesting. I think Barry and um, Catherine clearly started off with a lot of clarity around how the roles should be divided. Although that changed in the crisis because they ended up stepping on each other's territories, although it was clear from the way they talked about that, there was no turf battle going on there. I suspect the reason that it's worked so well for them was their relationship. Plus, they're both extremely passionate and committed about the firm. They've both spent all their professional career in the firm and they love that firm and they love the partnership that it embodies. And they really, really care about doing everything that they can to make it successful. And I think that's really fundamental. Yeah, but it's not just about them liking each other and believing in the same things. It's also important that they've both been exceptionally successful fee owners in their own right, because that not only gives them legitimacy amongst the partnership, it also makes them stand up to each other as equals when they do disagree. Well, that's all for today's episode and thanks for listening. And thank you again to Barry Devereaux and Catherine Dean for joining us today. Yes, thank you. And please remember to subscribe, rate and review Leading Professional People wherever you get your podcasts.